So I'd like to welcome you all back to the podcast of the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Ivan Coy, who is a fellow of the college and uh, a very well-travelled fellow who's worked over here in New Zealand but has worked for a number of years in Ireland and is currently based at the King's College Hospital Urgent Care Centre in London. Um, Ivan, you may be familiar with if you read the Journal of Urgent Care Medicine because he curates the abstracts of urgent care every month and we'll talk more about that later. But um, welcome to the podcast, Ivan. And if you could just tell us a little bit about your background, what you've done in urgent care around the world and um, where you've what you've done in prior to meeting today. Sure. Thank you, Guy. Um, So, yeah, I've been... um previously been in New Zealand, so working for about 12 years, from the mid-2000s till early 2020. Um, fell into and loved urgent care um, after doing a little bit of emergency medicine, and so did completed my fellowship. And then most part of the college in terms of uh, the S-door and the exam as an examiner as well. Um, but since 2020, we left these shores and we went traveling. Uh, initially, first in the Republic of Ireland in Dublin, where um, we worked in one of the, uh, I worked in one of the urgent care centers there and helped train a few of the colleges registrars that were based there. And more recently, in the last sort of six months, I've re- relocated to London and now based in Southeast London in King's College. And I mentioned to you put together the abstracts of urgent care every month and that involves looking at all the latest papers and you sent me a paper that was a little bit older and therefore maybe didn't meet the criteria to be in your um, more up-to-date selection Um, and this paper was from 2019 the European Journal of General Practice but you felt it was worth discussing so uh, since you're around this side of the of the um, of the world we thought we'd catch up in person and the paper you sent was uh, titled diagnostic errors reported in primary healthcare and emergency departments a retrospective and descriptive cohort study of 4830 reported cases of preventable harm in Sweden by Rita Fernholm et al um, and why did this um, jump to your attention? What, what, what was it about this paper that you thought was relevant to our, so, to our listeners? Yeah, thanks. Um, so from my point of view, it was a fascinating look and insight into um, things that go wrong and how we can try and um, look at things and try and figure out what, what uh, mistakes or um, things that we can sort of overcome in terms of looking at the way we treat patients and also from my role in terms of dealing with uh, complaints, then trying to figure out are there ways to actually um, mitigate these circumstances. Um, And so it it was an interesting paper in terms of looking at two different sort of parts of the health system, the primary care part and the emergency department part, we as urgent care physicians kind of sit in that grey middle ground so uh, have a little bit of foot in each of those sto- these stores and to try and sort of see whether there's anything we can learn from this paper of the types of errors uh, that are being made, types of harm that the patients uh, come to and whether we can mitigate this with uh, focusing our history taking, our diagnosis on that front. So, so what was done in this paper? What was um, 
What, what, what did they do? And what so they this at? was a data review of, uh, that spanned over five years, so from 2011 to 2016. And they looked at two databases uh, that were available in Sweden. One which is basically patients self-identified or self-reported what they perceived as harm. And the other one was um, actual harm that was reported by a system, uh, a quality system within the, the health service there. Um, so the, they looked at the two different sort of systems, um, identified uh, specific numbers of patients that, that came to harm because of um, different types of errors that, that, were, that, were, that had happened and then um, tried to then stratify what kind of cases and where, where which type of errors were, were being made that caused these patients harm. I think that's the interesting thing for me when you sent this through because obviously, as you've mentioned, it was primary care and ED and we're very much, as you say, straddling those two things. But it broke down into actually identifying what types of uh, complaint were commonly missed because I think we all acknowledge that mistakes happen or errors happen or diagnosis is not always possible on day one, particularly if we are the first person to see them or we're seeing them in a very fleeting moment. If the history isn't there, the clinical signs aren't there, we're not likely to necessarily pick up on that one um, specific visit, but we are then part of the journey that patient's on. And um, it, it, I guess if we know what is commonly missed, we might have a slightly raised awareness for those. So so what did they, what did they find in the in their uh, work? So basically when they did the, um, the stratification, they found that on the database itself, so uh, safety incident databases, um, they identified uh, 500 odd cases from there. And from the patient reported cases, um, there were 4,388 cases that were identified. Um, they then sort of split them into uh, primary care and emergency departments and there were 3,000 cases of those patient self-reported harm cases within the primary care sector and uh, another 1,300 uh, within the emergency department. Um, what they did find was that the most common um, diagnostic error, uh, 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 most common causes for harm were diagnostic errors, um, 40% uh, across the board. And uh, with specific diagnostic errors within primary care uh, of those being mainly made out of cancer misdiagnosis or not picking up on cancers. Whereas in the emergency department, um, the main uh, errors that were identified were those of misfractures. And of the other types of errors that were, what made up the other? Um so in the um, in the primary care sector, the, the other types of errors that were uh, constituted were those of um, heart disease uh, cases, so, uh, cardiac cases. Uh, there was also uh, uh, mis prescribing, uh, so medication errors. Um, and in the emergency department uh, point of view, the main uh, cases that were there were basically that of um, fra fractures, I say, but also tendon injuries and um, other sort of minor injuries uh, cases. 
So I guess we look at this through the urgent care lens, um, thinking about how cases of cancer were missed through the primary care setting here. How does that affect urgent care work, do you think? So I think, um, well, I don't know about you, but uh, from, from my own practice at the moment, uh, a lot of patients will come to you concerned about cancer. So come to you with saying, I've had headaches for the last uh, three weeks. I'm worried about cancer. Can I have a head scan? Or I've had X, Y, and Z, and so worried about that. And so from my, my sort of practice and uh, the, the team that I lead, it's kind of having that heightened awareness to, to actually be able to use our clinical judgment, our clinical examination skills, our history-taking skills, to then be able to sieve that, uh, that cohort and then decide whether, yes, this is something that needs uh, attention and needs uh, further uh, follow-up either with their own primary care uh, uh, practitioner or whether we send them on towards the emergency department to get worked up that same day, for example, or whether it's something that actually we can say this is something that I think is, is not sinister, not threatening, uh, but however, still do follow up with your own uh, GP at some point in the next sort of X number of days or weeks uh, if this is uh, continues to be a, a recurring issue. Yeah, I think I mentioned this in a, a podcast talking about um, bowel cancer and the fact that we do have these referral criteria here. They're probably different in, in England and um, every country has different access to different resources and it can depend on insurance, it can depend on postcodes, sort of lottery type things. But I guess if you have a, a, a pathway that says if, if this, this, this and this, then you can refer and therefore that person doesn't meet those, then I, it, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't have cancer, they just don't meet the referral. And so where we need to be careful is not in falsely reassuring because you don't meet the criteria but ensure that that person is followed up correctly and, um, and, and to do as much as we can do, because you know, we can all access bloods. We can put in referrals to, um, and, and see. We can try and advocate for our patient, I guess. You can, you, you can really strongly make your case in referrals, but um, uh, yeah, I, I guess the awareness is probably the, the, the thing that if you think of cancer, then you're more likely to both exclude it to your satisfaction or keep it on your radar so that you follow the patient up or ensure they get follow-up and you sort of keep ownership of them slightly if you've got a bit of concern so you're sort of um, you know, you've got to maintain those um, that awareness yes and interesting enough in this paper itself uh, colorectal cancer was one of the highest sort of um, cases where um, that constituted of delayed er diagnostic errors um, of 22%. So mm. that, that sort of hi highlights that it is a tricky sort of uh, condition to actually diagnose yeah. at, at times. Mm. And not everyone comes in with a bond or sort of history and um, um, the signs that you can kind of directly kind of say, yes, that's the case. Yeah, you, you can be under 50, you can have bleeding, but you might have piles, which might be attributable to bleeding but may not be the bleeding and your bloods may be stable and therefore you know you, you don't have a family history and just the the numbers do suggest that the um, early onset colorectal cancer is on the rise so 
that must mean that there are cases being missed and therefore these referral criteria are not perfect. So, um, and and it, I guess it's that fear in urgent care that we're there for their one urgent problem, satisfy the urgent problem and then send them away. Um, and, uh, and and that's that's fine, but we still kind of do have to advocate for them a little bit in respect of either um, putting in that referral, doing some tests, or just explaining how important their GP follow-up is and, and how um, they might not see the benefit in following up if they've seen you today, why do I need to see them again in a month or something? It's, um, and I guess trying not to scare them too much. It's, it's diff if you say the cancer word, you know, you must see them because I think you have cancer. That's not the way to do it. So th th there's a bit of an art, isn't there, towards um, following them up. Um, so the, in primary care, it was predominantly the cancer um, misses. And you mentioned fractures in ED. And I think this interested me because I think reflecting back on working in ED, I think we manage fractures very differently when I work there compared to urgent care. Do you, do you would, would, would you sort of agree with that as a... Yes, uh, as a whole, because um, they're, they're, the system is set up slightly differently in terms of the way reporting is done, the way results are, are communicated through. So, um, and there, there, there can be lags in terms of the delayed for, of picking up reporting as such, uh, compared to urgent care where the, the reporting is, I think, a little bit more... Uh, quicker to, to arrive uh, at, at most people's inboxes um, and so you know most most clinics that I've worked at have some sort of red flag system that where these things are generally picked up within the 24 hour period of the patient actually attending the, the urgent care clinic whereas in the, the emergency department that may that, that there may be a delay from that fact uh, specific uh, factor. And I think a lot of the clinics I've been in here in New Zealand will have fracture clinic follow-ups and or soft tissue clinic clinic follow-ups, where certainly registrars and fellows have a uh, have been in uh, kind of trained to have a high index of suspicion of certain types of injuries. And I'm thinking here of your your Salter Harris one injuries of the wrist in kids, or the um, obviously scaphoid is the classic that everybody kind of the, the occult fracture that everybody's aware of, but um, just kind of um, mid-foot injuries, high ankle sprains that don't meet the criteria for immediate referral to an orthopedic surgeon, but also don't need the discharge and don't see again. And I think we keep ownership of them, and maybe ED aren't set up to have that sort of, um, you know, the, the, that, that, that grey area. And I think that's where urgent care is definitely um, kind of carving itself its own niche in the specialty world and that, that, that that's where we're, our focus is a little bit more. So it would be interesting if this study were to be done including urgent, urgent care, care data yes. to see what, because what, obviously we will make errors because we're, we're all humans, but um, I would imagine that we would miss less of the fractures or if we did miss them, it would be picked up within the suitable follow-up time that that person doesn't end up with. Well, with an issue, um, yeah. would, is it, would you sort of agree with that? Yes. That yeah, I think I think there is that uh, because of the the way the processes are in place. Then yes, I think uh, the pickup rates for anything that is missed is actually quicker in within the urgent care system in general, uh, be it in this country, Ireland, or the UK, than it is if if we we were in the emergency department, say, 
sector itself. And I guess it's just a where is our focus and general practice is focusing on keeping people well and, and chronic disease maintenance and ED are very focused on the critically ill people. And, and I guess we therefore have the, um, our focus is on these patients in the middle. And if they're critically ill, we refer them on and they're no longer our responsibility. But I think we definitely maintain a responsibility within the, the injury um, category especially and it's helped here with ACC isn't it? Yes yeah ACC I think uh, does a lot of benefit um, and having stepped out of the ACC system then I I, I I do appreciate the fact that you do have an ACC system in New Zealand that seems to be a very robust sort of mm. way to help uh, negotiate all the injuries especially. Because just taking one of the examples here the rotator cuff 20% miss um, it's my experience that a lot of significant shoulder injuries with a normal x-ray, if they've got some reduced movement, it's very easy to access an ultrasound at least to, to get a, an overview of the rotator cuff. It's not as ideal as an MRI, but at least if it shows there is some form of tear, however deep or however extensive, that then necessitates a chat to an orthopod to get the MRI to then determine. And, and I think that um, that that means we were li less likely to miss them. And the Achilles tendon missed at 27. My initial comment to you was, how do you miss them? Because they're obvious when they're obvious. But you think they're the ones that are the subtle? Yes, so uh, I think you can have, uh, so the barn door big ones that go pop and there's a gap and you know you do your Simmons test and that's positive. That that I don't think is the issue in this these situations. But there are those where, because the Achilles tendon is such a big tendon in, in itself, then you can have minor undersurface tears, for example, that may not declare themselves and you, you will not. So in an undersurface partial tear, you will not feel a gap because the, the top surface where you are palpating is still intact and congruous. Um, the Simmons test may, may be still negative or equivocal. And so in, the, in those situations, then, being able to then kind of, as, as you in our preamble kind of said, you could put them into a wedged moon boot or, or an Aquinas back slab if you wanted to arrange an ultrasound scan, which could be done quite easily through ACC, detect this and then refer them on. Um, that, that's quite, quite easily or quite readily available to the New Zealand sort of side of things, whereas in other, other countries then that might become a bit more logistically difficult to do. Yeah, so I think we certainly here in New Zealand we definitely own Achilles injuries that are not obvious tears but you're still a bit suspicious. I think the practice here is still quite cautious and so I would hope that we wouldn't miss as many of those. Um, so any any other comments on this paper that you, what, what would be your sort of take-home message for people having a look at this? I think the take-home message is be on the lookout uh, and that's the, ma the main thing is uh, take the whatever complaints that, that I know you know if you if you're in a busy clinic and this is your 30th patient that you're seeing in, in a 10-hour shift or whatever then it, it, it can be uh, difficult and sometimes tiring but do have a, a high index of suspicion, especially when patients are telling you about concerns that they have, and do take them on board. Um, if there are ways to actually then placate and sort of reassure them, then great. But if there, if there is still that doubt in your own mind, then um, 
the fallback of referring them back to their own general practitioner for more follow-up or to then onward refer them on to uh, a specialist but could potentially sort of help uh, eradicate some of these uh, missed opportunities that are, are there. Yeah. And you mentioned complaints that you deal with. Um, every clinic or institution has those um, and they're important learning opportunities but so is reading the HDC reports here in New Zealand just to see the sequence of events that went into something happening. The MPS do their case reports. I'm, I'm sure the, there's, every country has a means of seeing these kind of um, case histories that with the retrospectoscope you might look back and go, oh, obviously, but when you put yourself in their shoes and think, well, what would I have done at that point? Um, it's a good way to kind of reflect and learn on, you know, where, where am I, where, where could I potentially go wrong in this cons consultation in front of me? Um, and I mentioned the, the the fact there that this paper had ED and urgent and, and primary care, and actually it'd be interesting to know about urgent care sitting in the middle. You um, uh, work uh, at the uh, Journal of Urgent Care Medicine as the abstracts editor. Is that correct? Um, and the journal we've we've chatted to Josh um, before about how important it is for urgent care to be doing work in, in the original kind of re research um, department so that we can get a body of work that says, no, this is what happens in urgent care. And this would be a good example of that because we've got what ED does, we've got what primary care, in this case, GP is. So it would be nice to think, well, where are the errors within an, an urgent care setting? So um, with your sort of urgent, uh, Journal of Urgent Care Medicine hat on, uh, what, what would you ha have to say about research in urgent care? Well, I think it is a, an important sort of uh, avenue that we need to sort of look at and explore and encourage. Um, it, this, this could be an easy, uh, simple thing that a registrar contemplating an MLP project could, could take upon themselves to look at their own centre, for example, and see what the rates are and wh where, where things are going wrong and 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 having having some data to to put to towards that, um, and I think from an urgent care and a college of urgent care point of view, then research is one of the steps that we have to be able to push boundaries and to be able to seek for continuous improvement, and that's the way to do it. Um, the Journal of Urgent Care Medicine is there. Uh, the our, our college so is part of their ad has a partnership that's been ongoing for several years now as the preferential publisher. And so I, I would like to encourage people who are keen to take that first step into research to actually look at to doing some. And if there there is any need for guidance, then we are we're obviously always there to help out where needed. So we will keep banging this drum. We'll probably return to this again, but people should definitely look into it. And, and as you say, if you need help and guidance, there are people at the, at the journal who can help to, to um, guide you through the journey of getting some work published. Um, just from your own personal point of view, um, talking about your abstracts, I've mentioned um, them on, on here before, and I, and I also use the research review, uh, the GP research review here in New Zealand, very similar 
um, although you, your focus is on urgent care, so it's more relevant to us. On, a, on like every everything you do is relevant to us, whereas I have to kind of extract the the urgent care um, meat off the bone of, of the other ones. But but the principle is the same in that they find. Um, papers that are out there that we can learn stuff from and read and then maybe follow the links and go a little bit deeper um, discuss at our peer review kind of just contemplate and and keep that CPD kind of cycle going of you know nothing is learnt once everything is learnt once and then again and again and again you revisit things all the time um, so just t tell me about your your abstracts. What, what do you do? How do you do it? And where do people find so, it? So yeah, so I got involved in it uh, about almost three years ago now. So um, initially, uh, I was co-editing with Avijit Parai, who uh, I think has been on this yeah, podcast cool. before. Um, but I've then gone solo um, and have been doing that for the last two years. Um, and as you say, it, it's. Um, I have links to all the journals, and so they just uh, I get a dump of of information um, into my inbox most uh, months, uh, at least two or three times a month, and I I basically kind of look for things that are very clinically pertinent, I think, because that's important, and some of the my own clinical sort of curiosity then may may fuel some of my my searches as well uh, in terms of the the abstracts and what I try to do is um, we try to get between six and seven abstracts uh, or papers covered each month um, on urgent care based um, topics uh, and so it's yeah that's that's part of what I do we try and get them proceed into about 300 words per paper so it gives you a nice concise sort of um, contextual uh, basis of what the paper is trying to, to explain and, and some comments that we then um, add to it as well. Mm. Um, there are some some uh, editions that will have COVID-based uh, papers as well. And um, in the last sort of 12 months, we've tried to highlight more pediatric-based um, uh, papers as well. So there is a nice mix of adult and pediatric-based um, stuff uh, that we put out now and at the moment yeah i like the fact that you can read the headline if you like the you know the, the i call it the headline and you and you think okay am i interested in reading that and then you can read the the sort of summary and your kind of um conclusions about it your thoughts about it um and then you can obviously uh, if you have um if it's not open access but a lot of our registrars will have university access and other means of getting um, deeper into it. So I think the, for me, it's you could easily spend an hour reading these um, and reflecting on them, digging a little bit deeper. And if you did that once per month, every time you bring it out, that's 12 hours of CPD per year. So there really isn't much excuse for not being able to gain enough CPD in terms of when, when, when people are struggling to find it. There are, there are so many options out there for for it and this is like um, you're literally putting it on a plate for people aren't you and I think so so I think people should um, uh, should check those out and there's the, the ways that you would find find the the abstracts um, so they are on social media so if you follow the Journal of Urgent Care Medicine on Facebook for example 
it, it's put out there um, every month along with other sort of um, interesting uh, articles as well that periodically get uh, highlighted. Um, you can get in touch with the college and I, I'm happy to share them through the college, either through the newsletter or uh, sort of contacting me directly. And I've got a mailing list at the moment um, for people who are interested. So yeah, just get in touch and yeah, I'm happy to share my work. Excellent. And we, I try and um, repost on Twitter the, the Urgent Care Journal's abstracts post as well, just because, um, uh, yeah, so there's lots of places you can find it. And I think it, I, I just like it. As a, as a fan of CPD, I like the idea of, um, of nice and easy stuff because sometimes my ideas for investigating something comes from a personal experience. Sometimes it comes from somebody I've spoken to who said something. Sometimes it comes from... You know, strange places like watching um, watching a film or something. But um, but uh, the the idea that you have found seven or eight papers of eight a month uh, and, and you can just scroll through them and think, actually, that's interesting. Let's go a bit deeper. Um, I, I, it's just yeah, as I said, you're serving it up on a plate. So I, I, I um, thank you for your work and, and enjoy enjoy reading them. And also thank you for sending this paper through. I'd encourage anybody who has anything interesting to send it um, through to the podcast, and we can chat about it. Um, and um, yeah, it, 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 my personal take home from this was it's interesting that cancers are missed in primary care, urgent care clinicians can be a part of that missing process so i think we've just got to change the gain on our on our sensors and, and be a little bit more um aware and the fractures that are missed in ed i think that we are we're actually very good at missing those but i would love to know uh, not missing those sorry i would love to know that the real data on that therefore maybe an mlp that could it get published in the journal of urgent care medicine might be the might be the the, the way to, to get that data but um again the I think Dave Sorrell's talked about this before. We, we've, um, and hopefully all our registrars are being taught this, that if it looks like a fracture and it feels like a fracture, but the x-ray's normal, treat it like a fracture, follow them up. The worst that can happen is they come out of a cast and are fine a week later. <laughs> Otherwise, you've, you've, you've treated them appropriately. So, um, yeah, there's no, there's no harm in treating on suspicion. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Ivan, for sending this through. Um, anything to say? before we finish or no happy to be here uh, <laughs> well, it's good to pleasure. see you in, in New Zealand and um, safe travels around the country for the rest of your, your time here and then um, good luck with your work in England and these sort of urgent care centres because it's interesting to see how urgent care is developing um, back there um, I hope I wish you well in forging a path through through the English system and um, yeah, give my best to, to blight you when you get home sure thank you thanks Ivan